Hello and welcome to this new Master Investor podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the uh, editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, among many other things. And uh, I'm delighted to be joined today by Stephen Yu, who is the uh, founder and chief investment officer of Blue Whale Capital and uh, manager of the Blue Whale Global Equity Fund, which has made a very impressive start to life since it was launched uh, nearly five years ago now in uh, 2017. As many of you will know, Stephen was uh, speaking at the Master Investor Show a few days ago, but uh, I thought it'd be a good idea to follow up with some questions that perhaps uh, not all of you had time to to answer. And uh, I'm interested myself. I followed this fund from the very beginning. I know the chairman of Blue Whale Capital, Peter Hargreaves, the uh, founder of Hargreaves Lansdowne, very well, and uh, once served on the board of Hargreaves Lansdowne. So uh, I was obviously interested when he agreed to back this startup fund management company. So, Stephen, welcome to this uh, little podcast. I'm going to kick off by saying uh, you're coming up to your fifth anniversary, and uh, certainly until the last few weeks, I think it's fair to say you've made a very uh, good start to life as a fund management company, judging by your performance and the size that the fund has now become. Yeah, I think it's been a very interesting journey over the last four and a half years. And, and I think one thing that was quite clear, including what happened recently, is that there's never been a doubt moment in the market. And, but I suppose that's the, I mean, the entire reason why we are here as being active managers is like this is part of our job, to hopefully, to be able to navigate the market and in a way that picking very good companies that might be able to transcend some of these macro uncertainties. But yeah, I think what happened recently is it does serve a reminder in terms of that that is our job here rather than like we're, we're hoping some some peace peaceful time, like never have any issues to worry about that maybe there's no requirement for us to be here. <laughs> Uh, yes, indeed. I mean, uh, I've been around long enough to know that just when you think the sailing is going quite well and the weather is calm, there's always a, a storm suddenly breaks. And, and we've certainly had a storm or two in the last few weeks, that's for certain. I mean, we've had the issue around rising bond yields and uh, the Fed's tightening policy. And of course, now we've on top of that, with inflation at a high level, we've also seen the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that's raised all sorts of issues. So, uh, well, let's just quickly dive into that, first of all, just to make sure that we know. I mean, it's no surprise, I think, that with a growth style, your fund has sold off quite uh, quite sharply this year. What, uh, well, can you quantify that and tell us exactly what, uh, where you've been most worst affected by what's happened? Yeah, I think we, what happened recently, I need to probably take people back slightly to history of the fund. I think if people have followed the market uh, this time last year, or maybe the Blue Well Growth Fund this time last year, that we were equally a few percent behind the market in, in an absolute term basis, so in a positive territory, I meant. But this year has been the other way around, that is, we are in a negative territory, but we are a few percent behind the market, etc. And I think this is just one of those things that people have to remember that the medium term interest rate uh, expectations has always have a impact on how you value a company that is quite kind of long term in terms of the money they can deliver or the earnings growth trajectory they can deliver over the medium term. And if you follow the market since the uh, Q4 2020, that the 10-year yield has gone up by about 1% until probably uh, six months later or nine months later, which is take you to about May last year, that our company would have experienced headwind in terms of valuation uh, headwind. But then I think what comforted us last year until 
November was that if you manage to invest into a company with very strong set of fundamentals, assuming there's no changes in their earnings growth trajectory over that period, then they would be able to catch up some of the underperformance and at the same time started to outperforming the market again, which they did in the second half of last year. And I think what happened recently since December 2021 until now is you would have seen the 10-year yield have gone up again by about probably just less than 1% from maybe 1.5% sometime last year to about 2.5% now. And I think we're just going through the similar journey. So our company have experienced this headwind. But I think the one thing which I'm sure we'll, we'll go into a bit more details later is, is the same exercise that we do. We will be asking the question, is that going to impact the earnings growth trajectory of Microsoft, NVIDIA, Alessian, and some other names in the fund? In, if the answer is yes, then, then of course, I think the underperformance is well justified. But then if the answer is no or not material, then we could expect the fundamentals would come back in play. And hopefully then the share price would reflect that too. Yes, I mean, we are coming into the, obviously, we're coming into the earnings season, or we've already started the earnings season. Uh, and what kind of uh, comments are you getting from the companies that uh, are either producing results or talking about their, uh, their expectations for this year? Of the companies you're invested in, are you finding a more negative tone or are you finding a, a more steady as we go kind of tone? Yeah, I think for our companies, who, which they have now all reported in Q1 a few weeks ago, was that I think the underlying dynamics of the business has remained quite strong because I think firstly, using Microsoft as a proxy, because I think people understand the company quite quite a lot, like surely Microsoft would have been a pandemic winner on the back of people working from home. But I think the momentum they have received since the economy is now reopened, most people have come back to work, is that we are forever more even dependent on the capabilities that Microsoft can offer to professional workers, such as the Teams, uh, the chat function that we use, whether you do conference call with your colleagues or maybe external clients, etc. And at the same time, I think it's just the capability in itself has been very important to what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. But then in contrast, if you look at some weaker company or company that we deem as low quality, but had been the pandemic winners such as Peloton that I've raised a few times already, if anyone follow that market, is the home bike uh, market that costs you about 2,000 pounds a bike. And I think if you look at the fundamentals of that company has deteriorated quite sharply since last year with increasing competition. And at the same time, they have actually burned a lot of cash over the last 12 to 15 months without making a profit. And if you look at how much cash they have got left on their balance sheet, it's probably not enough to survive within the next 12 months. And I think it's very questionable in terms of the what they're going to do from here. And I think that they have done a few things which sounds like probably a bit desperate. Like they, I think recently they have extended the trial period from 30 days to about 120 days. So, so they are really eager for you to take the bike home and try it for 120 days before you decide whether you want to spend that 2,000 pounds to buy the bike. But as we all know, given a choice that we want to go to a gym physically rather than like cycling, uh, doing exercise at home all day long. I think it's just one of those things that you can easily see that maybe people are not that keen on this kind of stuff. But I think for the likes of Microsoft or some other software providers that are critical to your day-to-day, -day, that I think there's been a permanent change of behavior 
and and I think that level of momentum and fundamentals would be quite well sustained, and the company can build on from from there. So I think if you look at most of our top tens, that you would. Easily get that picture. I think the other thing which is quite interesting is about inflation. That I think from our company perspective, because their gross margin has been very high, at the same time they have very strong pricing power. So I think from that perspective, they are not overly concerned. I think they've been pretty relaxed about that as well. Let me just backtrack there one second and say, I mean, in terms of your general approach, you run a, a pretty concentrated portfolio. Um, so when we go into these periods of uh, of volatility and uh, style rotation, another factor you mentioned, is it your approach to make a lot of changes to the portfolio or, or are you more in the case of saying, well, we bought these for a reason and now we've got to decide whether that reason is still valid, picking up some of those points you've just made? I mean, have you made a lot of changes to the portfolio in the last three months? I think we have made some changes, probably not major changes, but obviously, like any, we want our company to be able to do well, irrespective of the macro environment. And obviously, we are now in a different set of macro environment compared to the pre pandemic era. And I think maybe two changes I, I would outline just to give our uh, audience a bit of a fa- favor on this. I think one was that we, we have always said that we will never be interested in banks. But I think sometime last year, you would have hear from commentators to suggest that maybe now is the time to invest in banks. But I think to us, it's always about uh, the level of transparency or disclosure behind the balance sheet. I don't think anyone could get to the bottom of what goes behind the balance sheet. It's just one of those things. And you're really betting on the management to tell you what, what is in that book, on that book, etc. I think if people have followed what happened to Barclays this morning, I'm not sure whether anyone have seen that, like Barclays has disclosed that they make a loss of half a billion for nothing. Like basically there was some bizarre trade that they did and we actually surprised the market <laughs> negatively as well. So so I think the banks in itself is not, never a good thing to, to, to do on the back of interest rate. But having said that, is we do recognize that the interest rate is going to go up. Even in the UK, we've gone up uh, quite quickly. In the US, definitely going to continue. And we have invested in this company called Charles Swap in the US, which is the largest investment platform. I think if you look at the fundamentals of the company, the competitive positioning, the clientele in terms of the portfolio, etc., is very strong. And then recently, they have also acquired the closest competitor, TD Ameritrade. And there's a lot of synergies behind the two companies as well. But I think if you really zero in how they're going to benefit from here is they're going to make a lot more money on the back of the rising interest rate because they, they basically get to reinvest the client's cash into some of this high-yielding asset without paying too much to the end customers. And so I think that is something that we added. And now you would see Charles Schwab on our top 10. I think the other thing is we have recently sold out of some companies that we deem have seen some negative kind of disruptions on the back of whether it was the directly from the pandemic winning from the pandemic that you have they have actually seen increased competition on the back of the pandemic which wasn't the case and i think one prominent one would be paypal and i think paypal was an interesting one because we have invested in paypal since we started the fund so it has been with us for about four years before we exited recently before the results in february this year and what happened with paypal was that before the pandemic they are the prominent market leader, right? If you want to shop online outside of the Amazon ecosystem, you want to get a PayPal wallet because that's what gives you the protection rather than you would be putting your in your credit card details on some random website that might then it might not be safe at the time. 
and they did, I think, for PayPal during the pandemic period in 2020, they uh, they have won over a lot of new customers who've never shopped online. But something actually happened last year in 2021 that suddenly that you, you have seen an influx of new competition coming into the space that consumer are actually quite open to the alternative to PayPal wallets, such as Apple Pay, the Shop Pay, Amazon Pay, and there are many more payment wallets out there. And I think on the back of that, we do deem that as like a disruption to the business model and as we exited. I think the other one, which is just using this as a context, is Netflix. It's a company that we never deem as high quality, but I think it's the same thing that you have seen last year that they started to lose customers to Disney+, Plus, to HBOs, which wasn't in the mix before the pandemic. And, and it's just one of those things, the competitive environment has gone up a lot, and which is negative for the fundamentals. So I think that is something that we recognize what this company have experienced recently. And in terms of your relative performance, I mean, obviously you're managing in the style you are, and that's the prospectus you put before your investors. But in a market which is driven by high, high and rising commodity prices, for example, I mean, you're never really going to invest in, in a mining company or oil company, or would you? Is that, is that possible that you might do that? I mean, it's not something you've done, I think, to this point, or if so, I'm not, I'm not aware of it. Yeah, we have not done that uh, historically. I think it's fairly unlikely we would do it. I think commodities is a bit different to banks because I think banks is just one of those sectors that you can never get any confidence. It's just one of those black box, right? I think commodities in a way that I, I think I look back to my previous career when I was a UK fund manager during the period 2007 to 2013. At the time, I was covering a lot of uh, mining companies, industrial companies in the UK, such as like Rio Tinto, BHP Billiton, and some other industrial company that are exporting a lot of machinery to China. I think at that time, you can work out that there's been a commodity super cycle because of the demand. It's demand driven that you can actually see China at the time trying to uh, improve their infrastructure, making sure like that there's a lot of factories. Of course, there's a lot of foreign companies trying to build their base in China at a cheaper cost that they can produce their goods, etc. And I think China has been quite efficient in terms of executing that plan, which then is very helpful. And you can easily think with that kind of demand-driven commodity cycle that it could be sustained for a long period of time. I think what happened recently is a bit more debatable because at the moment, I think it's a lot more to do with the geopolitics that you have you have seen the disruption on the back of the conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine, Europe. And I think Saudi Arabia just announced that they have some issue in that area that maybe they're not able to I mean, extend their supplies. And hence, I think oil price could stay high. But I think the question that you have to ask is whether this kind of uncertainty would go away because it's not demand-driven. I think people in the UK or maybe in the US are, or even in Europe, that I think this rising energy bills or, or fuel costs is actually quite detrimental to our disposable income. <laughs> we are not actually gaining anything. We're not actually gaining anything. And you can easily see what's going to happen is like if the energy prices remain quite high in this coming winter, probably later this year, that I think some household might be start reducing the number of hours they turn on their radiators and all that stuff. So, so I think it's very unhealthy kind of commodities, uh, the prices that we're seeing now and, and whether that can be sustained because it's not demand driven, I think it's questionable. And then if it cannot be sustained, then you have really to take a view on what the oil price might be three years from today. 
which would be quite difficult, isn't it? It could be $100, it could be $150, it could be ATN. And um, it is one of those things like if you do invest in a company, that is the predominant driver to the earnings or revenue is down to the oil price or maybe the copper price, then you need to actually have some certainty on that number. And it's just one of those things that at the moment, we we have no plans of investing in, in this area. But I think how we might, do it is if we suddenly think that maybe there's some structural increase in demand for the commodities that we're consuming or that we're seeing higher prices, then I think then you can argue that may be a structural growth story there. But at the moment, it's not clear. So you mean something like uh, uranium or something could become a, a structural growth story uh, because of <laughs> geopolitical decisions, that kind of thing. But I don't suppose, did you back in the day ever invest in a uranium company? Mining? No, no, we've never done that. But uh, but I think, no, but I think if you're talking about like some of the uh, commodities that China was was very much in need at the time was like iron ore, like copper, like matte coal and all that stuff. But, but I'm not sure about uranium. It's one of those things, isn't it? Like, I think it's just one of those things. It's not similar to banks, but you think like, oh, why don't you invest into some like agricultural sector now because of the wheat prices has gone up a lot. But it's not like the farmer, like no one seemed to be making any money out of this. And then the other thing which I've talked about recently is like people would, would think maybe the defense sector is a pretty awkward area to be in now because all the governments are going to increase their defense budget. And you want to invest into the BAE system, the Lockheed Martin, all the stuff. But if you do follow the sector over a long cycle, is it's never a good sector to be because the, the end customer being the government can never be trusted in terms of how whether you can actually get pay in terms of the receivables, whether they, they change the contract throughout like different like election cycle and all that stuff. It's just one of those things like at the moment it seems great, but then there's always something that you thought you're not investing into, but then at some point it's come back coming back to bite you. <laughs> and so I think you need to probably square that on both sides. At the moment, I think we the company that we have in the fund that we can easily think that the uncertainty in terms of disruption to earnings growth trajectory is very low or immaterial based on what we're seeing. And I think it's just like we want something that is quite easy to understand, something quite easy to follow at the same time that we don't have to ask too many questions and start putting up like the probability of whether this is going to happen or not happen. And then and it just make the investment case a bit low quality on that basis. So, so we want to try to stick with something that is quite simple. Because you run a what is a global fund, and obviously in the in the last few years we know that the U.S. market has dominated the world index uh, quite significantly, up to nearly seventy percent at one point, I think, by market cap. Um, and of course, we all also know that just where a company is listed doesn't actually mean that much anymore in these modern times. But in terms of where, if you like, the underlying revenue and earnings from your companies come from, have you seen or are you making any shift in the in the kind of regional balance inside your portfolio? In other words. You know, how much has it, uh, it changed because of a, a view about uh, which parts of the world are going to do well and which parts are not and how that's reflected in your company performance? Yeah, that's a very good question, actually. So we, we are bottom investors. We don't take a top-down view on which country to allocate more money. But I think one thing is quite interesting that our audience might not see on our fact sheet is that on our fact sheet, you can see that you will see that we have about 70% investment in the U.S. equities by listing. 
But then what we do internally is we break it down by the underlying revenue in terms of where they actually make their money. And I think the, the recent number that we've done uh, to the end of February was that we only have about 43% in the US economy. And then funny enough that we don't have any much direct investment in Asia Pacific, but then on an underlying revenue basis that we have a just short of 30% in Asia Pacific, which probably makes sense given that a lot of our companies are quite global, that they, they do sell to Asia, et cetera. And I think this is one of those things like we, I think it's not as easy as you pick a country that's the fastest growing and whether, and, and then and try to come find a company that can be exposed to it because like it's never that easy like you can easily look at china i think i've got been asked about i mean we don't have any direct chinese investment in the fund uh, today but people will be asking oh surely the potential in in china over the next five to ten years is going to be a lot higher than what we have in the uk or maybe in the us but i think the problem is always this which company is going to be kind of the net beneficiary from that trend and i think what we we know about China recently is is never that certain. Like you can have some company that have been doing exceptionally well over the last five to ten years, and suddenly they they stop doing well because of a change of policy, which you don't. We would not have that in the Western economies. I think because of the democracy, or maybe because of how the rules that have been set in place and all that stuff is not like you just want to make the changes and suddenly just become like the company just become not working for shareholders anymore. So I think these would be the kind of things that investors need to balance. I think for, as far as we are concerned that we would rather stay with the Western company that would actually give us not only the better corporate governance, the level of transparency at the same time, I think the, the regime within, within that context would protect uh, shareholders as well. And on a slightly different theme, have you uh, had any uh, M&A coming into your portfolio. I mean, there was last year at least quite a lot of M&A, as we know, a lot of private equity activity as well. But obviously, that's dried up a little bit this year. <laughs> but have you found that uh, M&A actually does uh, reflect your views of the value of some of the companies you own? Or is it actually a case that many of them are too big or too good to be uh, at risk of being taken over? Yeah, I think I think this is one of those things. I think, unfortunately, we have not actually benefited from any of our companies being acquired by, by some other company. I think part of the reason is because our company are pretty big companies. The average market cap of our holdings are over 100 billion pounds. So they're really big company. And of course, if you, you look at Microsoft, it's like over $2 trillion. It's not small. I mean, you would not expect like Apple is going to buy Microsoft because they're equally, they're kind of equal size on that basis. But I think what we have experienced, which we would equally see that is beneficial to our companies, is we would have seen some of our companies have made acquisitions over the last couple of years. I think recently the most prominent one for Microsoft would be Activision. They spent about $70 billion acquiring Activision, which is the game producer for Call of Duty and all that. And I think then the question for people to ask about, like, is that a good price? Like, have they overpay? Of course, I mean, you would rather be like Activision shareholders rather than Microsoft spending $70 billion buying that company. But I think what we do know as a shareholders is they uh, typically for some of these uh, big companies, they do run quite a high cash balance on their balance sheet. So Microsoft actually... Well, I mean, it was net cash before these acquisitions, and they do have about $70 billion of cash sitting on their balance sheet doing nothing. And at the same time, that is going to be marginal uh, earnings accretive for Microsoft is going to be a couple of percent earnings accretive. But at the same time, what is more exciting about this acquisition 
is about the synergies or how it could improve the competitive positioning of the Xbox, which is really one of the top two uh, console kind of the the game makers in the world. And and at the moment, I think what we're seeing is like they they try to be quite vertically integrated. So they do make the console, but at the same time, they want to have their own offering as well, which is going to be slightly differentiated versus like Sony, PlayStation, etc. So I think on that basis, I mean, we have seen some of this. I mean, recently another one was uh, unfortunately it didn't happen. Was Nvidia was trying to acquire ARM, which is due to be listed in the UK or US uh, due listed. I mean, if do, they do manage to get it, I think it will be quite beneficial in terms of what they're doing in the GPU space, etc. Unfortunately, they didn't path through the the antitrust, etc. And um, but no, we haven't actually seen any of a company being being acquired on the other side yet. But we we'll see. So I think it's just the size that they're they're quite big. It's not it's not easy to do it. <laughs> yes, I mean this just brings us back to perhaps the final point for for this particular call, which is you know I remember discussing this with you when you were about to launch the fund. You are investing in a lot of very large companies, and you are promising to outperform or you're hoping to outperform when you're certainly uh, raising that prospect with your investors. And yet these are very large companies which ought to be you know if there was market efficiency they ought to be the companies that are most successfully or most correctly valued by the market. Uh, but your premise, of course, is that, that is not the case. And perhaps you could just remind us why you think that is the case. <laughs> yeah, I think I think this is a very good one. So in terms of uh, our investment objective or what we're trying to achieve for this fund is to deliver significant outperformance versus the market, which I think even including the recent uh, underperformance over the last few months that we still have managed to do that, maybe a bit less now compared to a few months ago. But I think one thing that is very interesting in the market is I think that many market participants like having a different time horizon having a very different investment objective and i think if you look at the broker's research which i talk about at master investor show uh, a few weeks ago was that you would have thought surely like for the likes of microsoft or some other names being a, a very large company covered by at least maybe 50 analysts globally that what is the edge that Bluewell would have got versus the other 50 analysts globally and, and many other fund managers that equally have invested in the company. But I think one thing is quite important is the market continue to underestimate the earnings growth trajectory for very high quality businesses. Because the one thing which is very interesting is if you look at the price increase that Microsoft is going to deliver in the next quarter, uh, which is about 15 to 20%, that we compare our numbers versus the market is still the market has not reflected the entire price increase for some reason. Whether you can call it like maybe the sell side analysts are just a bit behind the curve. Maybe they, they don't really care about the long-term trajectory of Microsoft because they don't get paid over the medium term. They get paid for this year, right? It's the recommendation that they put onto Microsoft now for the next couple of quarters of earnings rather than in the next three years. And and I think the other thing is like there are many hedge funds out there that might have a slightly different objective as well. So I think as a whole, then you can take a medium term horizon on some of these high quality businesses that we what we have learned over the last four and a half years, you can still deliver a level of performance. But I think the opposite of that is you can't actually get that alpha in the next couple of two quarters. That's the opposite of that because the market is efficient. So if you, you ask me what Microsoft is going to do in the next quarters, I have no idea. But if you ask me, oh, do we have some kind of clear thesis in terms of what Microsoft could deliver in the next, let's say, three years, 
uh, and whether what happened recently have changed that trajectory, then I think we we do have a level of confidence on that. And same goes for like Nvidia, Atlassian, and some other names that we have on our top ten. So the final comment I can make is that uh, you're obviously not going to change what you're doing or the way you go about it, and uh, you're going to take the rough with the smooth. And uh, let's hope that you uh, continue to uh, post some superior numbers, and uh, we get through this difficult period in the market without too much damage. So uh, thank you, Stephen, for your time. And uh, I don't know if you have any final comment you want to make about where we're going and how the world looks at the moment. It looks very uncertain, but uh, you've lived through worse than this, I, I imagine. Yeah, I think maybe one last comment. I've made this comment quite a few times on on the Master Industry Show on uh, on the day as well, because I think a lot of people would have asked, "Oh, surely the world is very uncertain with the uh, Ukraine conflicts, with the interest rate going up, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But I think one thing people have to remember is the market is extremely efficient in terms of pricing in some of these uncertainties, and I think that's something that I have learned over the years. Do never underestimate how efficient the market is, and I would. Like to give this example to remind our audiences. Like, if you look back to the pandemic period, which was uh, I break it down into Q1 2020 versus Q2 2020, and I think in Q1 when the pandemic broke out in the UK or in Europe and the US, the market was down a lot. I mean, that was a massive sell-off of the market, including the likes of Microsoft, and Microsoft was down like over 25% at one point. But then what was quite interesting in Q2 when we actually have the lockdown without knowing the news, whether we actually have a vaccine in time, that the market recovered by about 20% in Q2. And of course, the market was down in Q1 and recovering in Q2 and hence it was flat. I think for us, we were a bit fortunate that we were already up over 10% in the first half of the year. So what I'm trying to say is that I'm not suggesting the market is going to have like a massive recovery in the next few months, but it's just one of those things like what we've seen over the last two weeks. If you look at when the Fed started to raise rates over a week ago, and then the market actually recover quite strongly on the back of that without not that the, the journey have I mean, not only the journey has only started, but the market has reacted in an opposite direction. So I think it's one of those things is going to make this year very interesting in a, in a way that it's not clear whether the bear market is going to last for a really long time or is that going to already have been finished. I think that's all subjected to the outlook for the next coming years. And I think the last point I will make on this is I think we just have a very good discussion internally this morning is I think we are going to expect a consumer-led recession based on the level of inflation that we're experiencing and also the rates that we're going to see in the coming year or so. And so what it's going to do to the market, I think for our company, we should be able to do quite well on the back of that. But then we'll have to see. So it's something that yet to be explored uh, later this year. Indeed. As always, the, the markets are uh, constantly surprising us and, and they're very complex and fascinating for that reason. Thank you, Stephen. This has been a uh, Master Investor podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and uh, I hope you will join us for future episodes as well. But in the meantime, uh, thank you again, Stephen. Thank you, Jonathan.